This morning's passage is Isaiah 46, 1 through 13, which can be found on page 607 of the Pew Bible. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal, and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. This is God's word. Please remain standing as we sing number 694, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. Good morning, and Happy New Year. First Sunday of the year, excited to be here with you. I know that uh, normally they let the youth pastor preach the Sunday after Christmas when everyone is out of town. I was out of town last week too, so here we are. We're all in it together. Excited to be with you on the first Sunday of the new year. I I love this time of year, the, the beginning of a new year. It's encouraging to me. It's uplifting somehow. The days are getting longer. The things on our calendar that we're excited about that used to seem like they were a long way off somehow suddenly feel like they're a lot closer. I feel like it's an optimistic time, sort of a restart, a reset. Everyone's making all sorts of New Year's resolutions. I feel like the gyms in this country do like 90% of their business in the month of January every year. I went to the gym last week when it was like four degrees outside. I, I, I decided to get out of the house when I didn't have to, to go to the gym, uh, because the last time, I've been paying for a gym membership all year, the last time that I went was sometime in the spring. So I, along with half of Massachusetts, decided that when it was four degrees outside on a January night, I needed to go to the gym, because the beginning of a new year is sort of the fresh start. It's a hopeful time when we feel like we can start over and get it right this time. From things like going to the gym to a fresh attempt to stop biting my nails, which I've tried to do like 40 times, it's never taken, to a new Bible reading plan, 
to a rejuvenated battle with a persistent sin habit. But for most of us, we've already fallen behind on the Bible reading plan, despite our best intentions. (laughs) Because even though we're very good at New Year's optimism, we are less good at following through on the goals that we have. Lots of things get in the way, and our old habits die hard. I feel like it's a struggle between our head and our heart. In my head, I know, I understand that it would be good to go to the gym in the evening or to get up early and go in the morning like some crazy people do. But my heart wants to stay in bed or on the couch. And more often than not, my heart wins that battle. In my head, I know, I understand that my sin is wicked. And that it's drawing me away from the glorious God who calls me his son. I know in my head that I am no longer enslaved to sin. That it is my old master. That I have been set free from that bondage. And that I no longer have to serve it. I know that in my head. But in my heart, I struggle with it. As we all do. Because in my fallen nature, I crave it. I want it. I am comforted by its familiarity to me and by the false sense of security that it offers me. And I think that false sense of security lies at the bottom of many rebellions against our God. At the point in the book of Isaiah that we are encountering this morning, the people of Judah, the southern kingdom of what used to be a unified nation of God's people, has been captured. The Babylonian Empire has conquered Jerusalem. They have carried away many of its people into captivity. And through the prophet Isaiah, who lived about a century before this uh, passage was being read and understood by God's people, God is speaking to his people. He had promised the coming of the Babylonians in the first place, which he himself had raised up to be the instrument of his judgment against the people of Judah who had turned away from him and from the covenant that he had established with them. They had made a deal together. Basically, he would be their God, and they would be his people. That's the essence of the covenant that God made with his people. It's covenantal language. I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will protect you and provide for you, and you will be faithful to me. That was basically the deal. But it didn't take long for the people to fail to hold up their end of that bargain. Very soon after establishing the covenant with his people, the people fail to be faithful to their God. While Moses was back up on the mountain talking with God, the people became afraid that he wasn't coming back. They felt that they had been abandoned. They had no leader and no God, so they made one for themselves. They were afraid, and in their fear, they sought the sense of security that their idol would offer to them. They couldn't see God. And they couldn't find his prophet, so they made a God that they could see. And the idol they made was right in front of them. It was not invisible or difficult to understand. It was shiny. And it looked strong. And it eased their fears. Whenever I read Exodus 32, the passage that we're talking about, whenever I read Exodus 32, I can't help shaking my head at this decision. It seems so 
ridiculous to me, so silly. Moses took too long coming down from talking to God, so they made themselves a god out of jewelry to worship instead. It seems bizarre and ridiculous from my 21st century perspective. Idolatry of the ancient world is absolutely silly to us. It's difficult for us to conceive why anyone would make this choice. Having seen what they just saw God do in overwhelming the people and army of Egypt, they turn instead to a God made out of earrings. I don't get that. It's confusing and bizarre to me. The idolatry of the ancient world was confusing. But it wasn't just the Israelites that were guilty of that sort of silliness. At the opening of chapter 46, uh, Isaiah 46, that we're looking at, we're introduced to two of Babylonians' most significant deities, Bel and Nebo, the idols that uh, were most central to Babylonian worship. But these gods are so powerless that they have to be carried around. We read that in the first verse of chapter 46. They're loaded up onto donkeys and moved from festival to festival. And God's mockery of this idolatry is a significant theme of this portion of the book of Isaiah in general. In chapter 44, he takes an almost, I think, sarcastic tone as he's talking about idolatry. He says, the idolater cuts down a tree. Half of it he burns in a fire, and the other half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. And the rest he makes into a god, his idol. And he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me. For you are my God. He's making fun of the folly of idolatry by saying you cut down a tree, you choose one branch to cook your dinner over, and you choose another branch to make a God out of, pretending that there's something different about the two. He's just stating the facts of idolatry, but he's making fun of it, it seems like to me. It's just a piece of wood. It's good for cooking. It's less good at being God. Or as Psalm 115 says, idols have mouths, but they do not speak, eyes, but they do not see, they have ears, but they do not hear, noses, but they don't smell, they have hands, but they do not feel, and feet, but they do not walk. And from our perspective, we think that that's so obvious that it barely even needs to be pointed out. Obviously, God is going to call them out for breaking the covenant that he had made with them, not to mention the sheer foolishness of idolatry in general. And so he calls them transgressors in verse 8 of our passage this morning because they have broken the most central command that God gave to them, that they should be faithful to him. But even though their idols were so silly, the people of God turned away from him again and again and again, hoping that the things of this world would calm their fears and save them from their trials. In addition to idols, they looked elsewhere for that sense of security. When the kingdom of Judah was anxious about warring neighbors who threatened to turn on them in 2 Kings chapter 16, the king of Judah, he did not turn to God for rescue. Instead, he looked around and he picked the biggest, strongest bully on the block, Assyria, and he asked him for protection. But he didn't just ask the king of Assyria for protection. It says in 2 Kings 16.7 that Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria at the time, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of my enemies. The people of Judah rejected their position as God's servant and his son and pledged instead allegiance to Assyria because Assyria was right in front of them. 
It looked so strong. It spoke to their fears and gave them a sense of security. And the thing is, that plan worked. God had already been raising up Assyria to do exactly what they asked him to do, to defend them from these enemies and to conquer the northern kingdom. And so Judah got what it wanted. In the same way that they had turned toward idols for the sense of security that they felt in worshiping those idols, they turned toward the power of the Assyrian Empire for the same reason. It was easier for them to trust in the things that they could see, the shiny, strong-looking idols and empires of their day. And even though I, with my 21st century mindset, can't really grasp why anyone would ask a golden cow statue for protection, I can certainly understand why people would turn from God toward an empire for protection. That's something I can wrap my brain around. Confronted with an army at their front door, Judah was afraid. And even though their God had protected them in the past, Assyria just seemed so much more real and powerful to them in the moment. It was easy for them to trust in Assyria's power. I feel like that's a struggle that every Christian understands. Confronted with the trials of life on this earth, it is easy to trust in the solutions of the world that we live in. It's easy for us to think that more money will be the safety net that we need to protect us from the things that might go wrong, or perhaps a good health insurance policy is going to save us from all the calamity that might befall us or our family. We scramble to make sure that we're doing everything we can to keep ourselves and our loved ones safe. And obviously, that's not a bad thing, right? I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't wear your seatbelt, right? Wearing your seatbelt getting vaccinations, taking vitamins, doing our best to prevent catastrophe in our lives is not a bad thing. But if we are trusting in those measures to protect us and our loved ones more than we trust God, that is a problem. And that's when it becomes idolatry. It's a matter of making secondary things ultimate. Medical science might be able to save me from an illness but it cannot ultimately save any of us from death itself. Money might be able to buy me the material things that I want, but it cannot satisfy the longing of my heart for eternal joy because the things that I will buy will eventually lose their luster. Yet, we keep turning to the things of the world. We make them ultimate things, looking to them to solve our deepest problems. We assume that because they are visible and comprehensible and they're right in front of us, that they are more present than God is and therefore more capable of protecting us from the things that we fear. We pursue that sense of security and we fall into idolatry the same way that God's people did. It is the great sin that landed them in captivity in Babylon in the first place. And now... As these people near their liberation, God is addressing this persistent sin again. And this whole section of uh, of Isaiah is God's commentary on the practice of idolatry. And we understand now that this is not just a commentary relevant to people in the ancient world, but it is relevant to us because we are guilty of this idolatry. By looking to the things of this world to solve eternal problems, spiritual problems, 
difficult and deep realities and fissures that exist between us and our God, we commit idolatry. So this section of Isaiah is relevant to us. He is commanding his people not to make the same mistakes over and over again, not to fall back into trusting these lesser things. And here in this section, in chapter 46, he does that by inviting everyone to compare him with their idols. Chapter 46 is a comparison between God and the idols, the powers of this world, broken mainly into two sections, verses 1 through 4 and verses 5 through 13, sort of two movements of God's argument here, one central argument. For over a century, these people had felt like their God had been beaten. Babylon was so big and so powerful, the gods that they worshipped seemed to be unbeatable, Because the Babylonian army had marched into Judah, had conquered Jerusalem, and destroyed Yahweh's temple. And so it seemed to many people like Bel and Nebo were more powerful than Yahweh. But God starts his argument by pointing out to people that Bel and Nebo are ultimately powerless. They've got to be carried around everywhere that they go. How humiliating for them. They're dependent on people. Meanwhile, Yahweh carries his people, we read in verse 3, just as he always has. He doesn't need to be carried. Instead, he carries. Idols cannot save. They must be saved by their worshipers. They themselves are carried away into captivity. They must be rescued by the people who worship him. That's evocative language for a people who are presently trapped in captivity. They are in captivity as they read these words, and they're reading that these gods that seem so powerful are easily themselves carried away into captivity, that they easily require rescue. Yahweh has never been carried into captivity. He sent his people into captivity, and he will carry them out. God is contrasting himself with idols. He has carried his people from before their birth. And three times in verse 4, he promises to continue carrying them. He says, I will do this. You don't make a God that you carry. You don't carry yourselves. I will do this. It's like he's saying in verse 5, who else can do that for you? Who else can carry you? Find my equal if you can. If you can find someone who can do this for you, I'll be impressed. He's inviting the comparison. On the one hand, you have the things of this world in verses 6 and 7. People dumping out their purses and wallets, emptying their bank accounts to buy themselves protection. They make idols, whether literal statues or otherwise. And on the other hand, you have Yahweh himself in verses 8 through 11. Remember these things, he says. Remember what you once knew. Remember it and stand firmly in this truth. Yahweh alone is eternal. He alone exists forever. And not only does he exist forever, but he defines and delineates the end and the beginning from one another. He commands the events of history from the tiniest and most seemingly insignificant inconsequential detail to the rise and fall of world powers. He commands it all. The life of a sparrow, Jesus said, worth no more and a few coins, does not escape the notice or the sovereign will of Judas, God. What he wills, he will accomplish. 
and nothing that happens defies or overwhelms his plans. He alone can say, as he does in verse 10, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. No one else can say that. He promises here to bring a bird of prey from the east, which he refers which is a reference to another dominant empire, the Persian Empire, whom he is presently raising up to accomplish his purposes, to overwhelm the Babylonians. He's in control of every event in history, from tiny, inconsequential details to the rise and fall of world powers. And his word is not only an assurance of who he is, it's the promise that he defines the scope of reality. What he says, he himself will bring to pass. And he invites us all to hold up an idol next to him and make the comparison. I think that there are three important observations or implications that we can draw out of God's invitation to every person to make the comparison, to hold up their idol next to him. First, God invites this comparison because he knows that an honest accounting of the facts will lead, lead people to the truth. He is confident that if they truly and honestly compare their idols from verses 5 and 6 with himself, they will realize the foolishness of idolatry. It's a guarantee. If people will look honestly at their idols, which are powerless to even move themselves, next to all that God has done, they will see the truth. Over the last year and a half that Jessica and I have been living in New England, um, I feel like I have been indoctrinated into some of the local customs, some of the local ways. Not everything. I don't feel like I drive like a New Englander yet. And um, I wouldn't cheer for the Patriots even if Jesus was the quarterback. And I'll tell you, there are plenty of people around here who seem to think that that's already the case. But where, where I grew up, it was acceptable to refer to this thick, brown, sugary sludge as syrup. And I liked it. I thought it was amazing, right? I thought it was delicious. I had never had real syrup in my entire life until I moved here. And, and to make it even better, the first time that I did try real syrup, we were at a syrup farm in Vermont somewhere. We went to the barn where they take all the tree juice and boil it. I don't know. I, and they boil it down and make syrup, and then we had a little syrup tasting where you, you know, get a little sample of the good stuff. And it was as soon as that sweet, sweet nectar, nectar touched my lips, my eyes were opened. I went home and I threw away that high fructose corn syrup. And I tell people that if they ever try the real thing, they better be prepared to be unhappy for the rest of their lives or mortgage the house to buy the good stuff because you will never be satisfied again once you've had the real thing. Once you've had real syrup, it's really hard to go back. I'm pretty confident that people will agree with me. If they try the real thing, they'll notice the difference. But the difference for God's people in Isaiah 46, apart from the fact that they aren't talking about syrup, is that they already know the truth. This isn't some unknown, totally foreign concept to them. They have seen God at work in the past. Their entire history is the story of God carrying them along, protecting them and providing for them, delivering them. And so he commands them to remember. Three times in verses 8 and 9, he commands them to remember. It's obviously important to him. 
down deep in their memory is this history that they have been handed down about the God who has been carrying them forever. He has already proven that he accomplishes his purposes, that he raises empires to do his will, that there is none like him, no one who compares with him. Even just in Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, God has already proven this. This is an an ancient story uh, that people have to try and remember all the details of how God has proven this. He's proven this recently to them. He promised to raise up Babylon as the instrument of his justice, which he did. He promised that he would send Babylon to capture Judah and exile his people, which he did. He doesn't just predict these things. He accomplishes them. This isn't ancient history for these people. They are proclamations that their parents and grandparents heard and saw brought into reality. And he commands them to remember it because evidently they have forgotten. To recognize that he is truly better. This is what I think Paul was talking about in Romans 1 when he says that with darkened hearts, people have exchanged the glory of God, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In sin, in idolatry, we swap out the true God for something that is less, something infinitely less, something which tells our fearful hearts exactly what they want to hear. We look for the things that will make us feel better or safer or that we can conform to our will. Idolatry is really all about control. It's making a God according to our specifications so that we can really be its master. In the, modern word, in the modern world, our idolatry is all about control. It's trying to make sure of the fact that we are in control of our lives and that no one can steer our ship in the direction that we don't want to go. But we end up exchanging the truth for something that, while it is certainly more comforting to us, is a lie. And so to expose the lie, God invites his people to try to find his equal, knowing that they can't reminding them of the truth that they have already beheld, what their hearts ultimately already know to be true. An honest evaluation of the facts will ultimately lead people to the truth. No cultural position or scientific discovery will erase him or overwhelm him. Second, God's invitation for the uh, people to compare him with their idols should give us confidence in evangelism. God is not afraid of this challenge to his supremacy. When I tell people to try real syrup for the first time, I realize that there may be some crazy people out there who don't actually like it, like the fake stuff better. When I tell people that the Broncos are the best football team that's ever existed, I realize that there are some people out there who might have reasonable arguments to the contrary. Maybe. Maybe. This is not like that. This is not a subjective conversation. God says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal, knowing that there is no one, nothing that rivals him. When the time came for God to bring his people out of slavery in Egypt, he faced a man in Pharaoh who considered himself a God and who was at command of the world's largest army at the time. But was it ever really a contest between Pharaoh and God? God went to great lengths in the plagues he poured out on Egypt to demonstrate to the world that he has no rival. There is no one who can match him in strength or ability. 
Pharaoh wilted like a leaf before the God of the Hebrew people. And years later, generations later, people were still in awe of the God who had overwhelmed the Egyptian kingdom. One of the challenges that we face in sharing our faith with our neighbors is that I feel like that we give ourselves too much responsibility. We know that many people in our communities have rejected God because they think of him or us as judgmental, flawed, anachronistic hypocrites. So it's a daunting challenge for us to think about sharing our faith with people who have rejected God. No wonder we are so meek when it comes to sharing our faith with our neighbors. We assume that we have to make God attractive to people who have already decided that they don't want to have anything to do with him. We assume that we have to sell God like a door-to-door salesman. When uh, Jessica and I were living in Texas, we used to have door-to-door salesmen come by our our house all the time. Uh, I think there was something wrong with our house because they would come by just all the time trying to sell us siding and windows. I I don't know if they were just driving along and, like, you could hear the brakes screech outside. They were like, these guys right here have got a problem. Easy sale. And they came by all the time, right? And they would want to go outside and show me all the things that they thought needed to be fixed, and they wanted to get out the the, uh, you know, spreadsheets and tell me all about how much we would save on our heating bill. They, you know, they were good salesmen. They came by a lot, and we never bought anything from them until the day that we did buy something from them and we replaced all the windows in our house. They were good salesmen who made it very attractive to us to buy new windows for our house. We make ourselves into God's salesmen trying to make this thing seem attractive when what God calls us to be are his witnesses. Our calling is to proclaim the truth, to stand on the revealed word of God and to get out of the way so that the word of God can, by the spirit of God, do the work of God. God welcomes people to hold up their idols next to him because he knows that if they do so honestly, they will be disappointed and what they used to trust. And they will rejoice in the God of the universe instead. I think this is what Paul, a master evangelist, said, or meant when uh, he said that he plants the seeds of the gospel and someone else watered it, but God was the one who gave it growth. Paul didn't try to take on the responsibility of authoring faith in people. He didn't try and take that responsibility from God. He didn't try and become God's salesman. He was merely a witness of truth. We shouldn't try and take on that responsibility either. We should be witnesses of truth. We should have confidence that when we preach the truth, people will make the comparison for themselves, that the work of God will be done by God himself, and that they will come to rejoice in the gospel. Third, God's assurance to his people that he is superior to their idols is rooted in his ability to save them. Idolatry in the ancient world and idolatry today are both built on the concern, the concerns that we have over the challenges of life in this world. We build idols to protect ourselves from illnesses, to save us from financial drought, to provide provide us with the things that we want. And often enough, it seems to work. People in the ancient world built idols to give themselves victory in battle, to make their crops thrive, or to give their people good health. And it's easy, 
It was easy for them, it's easy for us to put trust, put faith in a God that we can manipulate. The problem for them and for us is that we ask, the things that we ask of our idols are way too small. Way too small. It reminds me of a famous C.S. Lewis quote that I'm sure that some of you are familiar with. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. And like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. The kid who has never seen the beach can't be bothered to leave his slum because he doesn't know how much better it is, how much more joy he would have in a day at the beach. The reason idolatry has been a persistent sin among all people forever is that we are too easily satisfied. Our fears are too easily calmed by promises of temporary fixes and patches. The idols that we worship may appear to save us for a day, to provide what we need in the short term, and to heal an illness that we're facing right now. But what power do they have in eternity? Can they save us in perpetuity, satisfy our longings forever? God has proven his ability to set the course of history according to his will. He raises empires, he topples empires. He brings justice to his people, and he liberates his people. So when he promises in verse 13 to bring near his righteousness and that his salvation will not delay, the expectation is that his people will respond in faith, faith that will be satisfied with nothing less than what the God of the universe is offering them. He calls them stubborn of heart in verse 12, people who are far from righteousness, and that is what we are because it's hard to abandon the things that we've clung to. It's hard for us to set them down, these things that have given us a sense of security for so long. They speak to our fears, and they tell us what we want to hear. It's hard for us to remember what in our hearts we know to be true, what God has already revealed in his creation and to us personally when it challenges our notions of right and wrong or righteous and unrighteous, when it challenges what we want to hear. But the God who commands this obedience is the God who enables it. He is greater than the challenges of this life and the things that we fear most. He is the author of our faith and the one who makes a way for us to come home. In Christ, the righteousness of God has come near. At the cross, he has put his salvation in Zion, the city of the people of God, so that they might call it their home and God their Father. We are too easily satisfied with the security that this world offers us. And so God invites us this morning in Isaiah 46 to do some honest accounting of where we put our trust and whether or not he is ultimately better for us than those idols that we worship. He knows that the idols of this world are powerless and immobile, and that he has been carrying his people, that he has been carrying us from before our birth, that he will carry us forever, that in his power we are protected, and that within his sovereign will nothing can overwhelm his plans for our good and his glory. Nothing in this world can make that promise to us apart from God. Nothing in this world can keep that promise apart from God. 
only the God who saves and can claim sovereignty and assurance over all history can make this promise of everlasting blessing for his people. So this morning, we echo the words of Proverbs 14 as we close. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. Amen this morning. May we cling to the hope that we have in the gospel. May we lay down our idols. May we be satisfied with nothing less than what the gospel promises us and what we receive in Christ. Will you pray with me? God, we're thankful for you this morning. We're thankful for your word, which speaks truth, sometimes difficult truth, which challenges us and convicts us. We are thankful because you are a God who speaks. Bring your righteousness near this morning that we might rejoice in that. Remind us of the truth of the gospel and the hope that we have in your Son. God, give us the courage to lay down our idols, to place our ultimate trust in you, to not make secondary, worldly things ultimate, but to look to you for our salvation. God, we're thankful for your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.